morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. It's great to be in church. Um, I love this family. I love what God is doing here. I love the worship. I love uh, just the hearts that are passionate about Jesus. Um, don't you love being a part of this church? Um, and it's exciting what God is doing in, in our lives. So I've got the privilege this morning of, of sharing um, a message that is a part of the series that we've been doing that's called I See Beauty. And, and this series is um, looking at the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Um, and, and today I'm going to be doing the final letter. It's not the final message in the series, but Pierre asked me to do this particular one today. And it's the, the letter that is written to the church in Laodicea. So we're going to look in a moment at the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14 uh, to verse 22. But before we go there, I just want to share something that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart um, as I actually woke up this morning that might well be relevant to kind of where we're going um, today. So as I, as I woke up, I was just reminded of, of the story in the book of Exodus chapter 33. You may have read it before, but the children of Israel who had been in bondage in Egypt for I think about 400 years are, are set free and they're walking from Egypt to the, the promised land. And a journey that should have taken 40 days ended up taking 40 years. And, and so they were in the desert and and, and God comes and speaks to Moses, who he used to deliver them and lead them towards the promised land. And, and a bunch of stuff has happened, and God is like, uh, these people, are, they've got hard hearts, and, and they're not listening to what I'm saying. And so God says, Moses, you know that promised land that I told you about? You, you can go there, but I'm not going with you. In fact, I'll send an angel with you, and you can go, and you can have the blessing, you can have the promise, but I'm not going to go with you because, because the hearts of the people have grown hard. That's, that's a... That's a sad thing to hear, correct? Um, so Moses, who is a, who's a man of God's presence, who's got a soft heart, who loves God, and has had a significant encounter with God, says, well, if that's what you're gonna say, that's what you're gonna do, if, if, then if you're not going to the promised land, then I'm not going to the promised land. He, he chooses God over the blessing. He's like, if, if you're not going to the promised land, then I would rather be in the desert with you than have the fullness of your blessing without you. And I'm like, wow, I don't know if I would choose that. I hope I would. But I'm thinking to myself, what was in this man's relationship with God? What, what had happened? What, what encounter had he had with the presence of God that caused the things of the world to be so insignificant compared to God that he wasn't interested in the blessing if he couldn't have God himself? We're living in this world where there is so much noise around us. There's so many things vying for our attention that, that sometimes we end up running after those instead of him. And I believe that God is calling us to be a people um, who says, God, we want you more than anything else. I want your presence more than anything else. And, and so at the outset this morning, can we, can we make that declaration together that says, God, I want you. I want you. If, and, and you know what? We don't have to choose. I mean, God said in Matthew 6, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all these things that you need will be added unto you. But the issue is priority. God, I want you. And God says, if you seek me with all of your heart, I, I will not only give you what you need, I will give you more than what you need because I'm a good father, amen? So, so as we pray this morning, and I know we've done lots of praying and I'm just gonna pray a short prayer, but can we just say, God, I want you to be my number one this morning. Anyone wanna agree with me today? So Father, we just thank you today, Lord, that as we have this moment together, Lord, we make this declaration that Father, more than anything else, we want you. Father, we want you. We want you to be our everything, Father, and we wanna be satisfied by you. We want to feast on you today, Father. We thank you that you invite us to a feast. And Lord, today, I want to say yes, Lord. 
And I pray that you would speak to us and speak through me and give me the words to speak that would be what's on your heart for your people today, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read together from the book of Revelation, chapter three, verse 14 through to verse 22. Um, and, and, and let's position our hearts to hear what God has to say to us. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is quite a letter. <laughs> it's not exactly the most encouraging thing you've ever read in your life, but the beautiful thing is that within this letter is great hope and great encouragement and, and, and real life and freedom. So let's go through a few things that God, I think, wants to say to us. I think it starts off by talking about, you know, obviously John is writing and he's, he's writing this letter of what Jesus says, and it says that these are the words of the faithful and the true witness. I, I believe that, that God is the one who holds the truth in his hands, amen? He is the one who has the truth about himself, about our lives, and I believe that it's imperative and important that we always, not just this morning, position our hearts in such a way that we can hear what he wants to say to us. Okay, I often say to my kids, sorry guys, um, I always say to them, you know, one of the most important things in life is to have a heart of humility and a heart that is teachable. We, we must never get to the place where either in relationship with God or those around us, that we come to the place where we go, I don't need I don't need you. I don't need your help. I don't need your input. Um, let's not get hard hearts that says, I know how to live life my way and I'll do it my way. That's, that's when you are in danger. But we need to position ourselves realizing I don't know everything and I need, I need God to direct me and, and I need people around me to help me discover you know, who he is and who I am and why am I alive. And so let's posture our hearts today and always in such a way that says, God, I want to be the kind of person that always, as Lucy said this morning, I wanna hear your voice. I wanna be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So God this morning has a letter, a message for this church, but I believe in the same way, he has a letter for you and he has a message at least for you and he has a message for me. Are you ready to hear what God wants to say to us this morning? Okay, so then he goes on and, and he brings um, what I think we could call, it's, it's a word of criticism, okay? St stay with me and be encouraged, don't worry, it's gonna get good. Um, but, but, but he has a word for this church and this is what it is. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's, I don't want God to say that about me, amen? Um, but he comes to this church and he says, I know your deeds. He says, but you are neither hot and you, or cold. I wish, I wish you were one of them, but you're not. You've become lukewarm. 
So to understand what he's saying, a little bit about the city. Laodicea was a city in Asia Minor that to the north of the city, about five miles north of Laodicea, was a city called Denizli. And Denizli was known to be a city, um, it was known for its hot springs. Have you ever been to have you been to hot springs before? They're pretty cool. I remember some years back going to New Zealand. I was speaking in the Every Nation Church in Christchurch with Pastor Bernard Vivigy, and we had a, just one day, and he took me to the Hamna Springs, and it was amazing. You sit in this hot water surrounded by mountains with snow on them. It's like heaven on earth, you know, just glory to God. And, and, and there's something about hot water, isn't that, that just, ah, it's just, maybe it's just me. Beautiful. Um, so this city, Denizli, was, was known for its hot springs, to the south of Laodicea was a city that was known to have a beautiful, fresh water supply, cold water that would satisfy and quench your thirst. But Laodicea was halfway between the two of them. And Laodicea also was a city that did not have a good water supply. So what they would do is they would pipe the water via aqueduct, whatever it was, from Denizli all the way to Laodicea, hot water. To there. But by the time it got there, what do you think the temperature of the water was? It was lukewarm. So Jesus comes to this church and he uses this metaphor, speaking not just into the natural, but to their hearts. And he's saying, just like the water supply that you have, sadly, your hearts too have become lukewarm. How sad is that? You see, hot water is useful, isn't it? It can bring healing. It can, I don't know, make your cup of coffee. Cold water quenches your thirst. But lukewarm, if you have your cup of coffee and it gets cold and it's like, ah, oh, that's not great, is it? He's saying, because you have lost your fire and your passion and your first love, no longer is your faith having an impact on the world around you. He's saying, come back to me. Let me reignite your heart. Now, maybe you can relate to this. I know I can. I know I gave my life to Jesus at a pretty young age. Some of you might know a bit of our story. But for most of my teenage years, to be honest, I was lukewarm. I believed in God, went to church from time to time, wanted to do the right thing. But to be completely honest with you, there wasn't a fire and a passion. But then in July 1995, as a student at the University of Cape Town, I went to a church and I had a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit. And my life changed because he ignited my heart with the fire of faith, of passion. And though life has been up and down, that fire has never gone out. And I believe that God is working in that way in all of our lives, around the world. He is, he's not looking for a church that just goes through the motions, ticked the box, cool, did the right thing. God is looking for a people who are, be will, who are willing to be set on fire for him, to have passion, to have zeal, because that's the only thing that's going to change the world around us. So maybe to stop and think, what is the temperature of my heart today? And, and wherever you're at, God doesn't come to condemn, he comes to transform, he comes to free, he comes to liberate because he's got something so much better for you and for me. So then he, he goes on and he begins to actually explain in this letter like what was the cause of their hearts, of their hearts becoming lukewarm. And let's read this together. It says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he's saying, he's saying, this is the reason that your heart has become lukewarm. He says, you, th you think that you are wealthy, but in fact, you're poor. He says, you think that you are clothed, but in fact, you're naked. You think that you can see, but in fact, that you're, you're blind. What, what's he talking about? So a bit more context again, in addition to the water supply in Laodicea, Laodicea was also known for three other things. Firstly, it was known to be a wealthy city. Okay, so in fact, it was one of the banking centers of that particular area. So, so they, they were wealthy. They were doing well. They were comfortable. They had what they needed. 
In fact, he says, you think that you're wealthy, therefore you don't need me. How tragic it is when we come to a place where we think, I don't need God. So, so he says, you think that you, you're wealthy, and so on. So it was, it was a banking center. That they, they, they were prosperous. They were doing well. Secondly, interesting, he talks about clothing. They were also a city that was known to manufacture a particular wool which they used to make clothes. And so, so a lot of their wealth came from that, but they were successful in that they were clothing people. And thirdly, it was a city that was known from a medical perspective that they had developed this eye kind of ointment to help people to see. So isn't this interesting? He, he's talking about their hearts, and he says, you think that you are wealthy, because in the natural they were doing well, but in fact that you're poor. You think that you are clothed, the clothing industry, but in fact you're naked. You think that you can see medical advancement, but in fact you're actually blind. And I think what he's saying, he wasn't saying that, that I have a problem with you being wealthy. What he was saying is that my issue with you is that you're no longer depending on me. You've become self-reliant. Does that make sense? God is not against blessing you, the issue that he's against is when you put your faith and trust in stuff rather than him. Are, are, you, are you with me? He's saying, I don't want you to be a people who's self-reliant. I don't want you to satisfy your heart with the things of the world. I want to be that to you because I created you in such a way that only I can satisfy your heart. So he didn't mind that they were blessed, but the problem was they didn't think they needed God anymore. Then he says about the clothing, I, I don't think the criticism was the fact that they were doing well in making clothes. But you know, in the Bible, clothing speaks about right standing with God. It speaks about righteousness. I think his issue was not the clothing. His issue was the fact that they were deriving their identity from that which is on the outside rather than who he said that they were. Amazing. And we live in a world that is just like that. We, 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 we live in this world where we derive our identity and success from what people think. Image, it's all about image and identity. And they were deriving that from, from, from stuff rather than from God. And he's saying, come back to me. Again, the issue with sight wasn't him being against the medical advancement that they'd made. I think his issue was not that they, they could see. His issue that they, was that they had lost vision. They could no longer see. You know, deception, I believe, is one of the most dangerous things because it's subtle. You, you get to the place where you think, I'm fine, I'm cool, but you can't see the truth. God, give me a heart to discern where I really am and what you're saying about me. So their hearts were lukewarm, therefore ineffective. Why? Because the affection of their hearts was towards things rather than towards him. And God was saying, I want to be that to you. I want to be the voice in your heart. I want to be the one that satisfies you. And you can run, you can do, you can, but in the end, it all becomes empty. You know, stuff's not bad. It just mustn't be your God. Does that make sense? So I remember reading an article recently, some time back, about a guy called Tom Brady. Anyone heard of Tom Brady? If you follow American football, which I don't, he's a legend apparently by all accounts. And, and in America, they have, isn't it funny, they have the World Cup or the World Series, but only they play. Anyway, God, God bless them. But, but they, they have the, their world, whatever it is, American football, and, and at the end of the whole thing, they have the Super Bowl, and it's the best teams. And if you make the Super Bowl, it's like, wow, you're a legend. And, and Tom Brady is like, like the legend of all legends because he's been in nine Super Bowl finals in his career. He's won six of them, and he was man of the match in four of them, like, like legendary status. And so he writes about the time when he got the trophy, and I think they give you a special ring or something, and he said, you know, I got this, the sixth ring or trophy, and he said, you know what? I woke up the next morning, and it was all empty. It's like, I, I should be so happy. 
but it was empty. I'd done everything. He's known as the greatest quarterback of all time. He said, but the trophy, the accolade, etc., was all empty. But then he said, praise God, I know Jesus. And I can do this for his glory, and therefore I'm not empty because it's in its right place and in its right context. See, God is not saying stop doing this, this, this. He's saying I want to be at the center of this, this, and this, that I can give it meaning and I can give it purpose. So this church was lukewarm and ineffective. Why? Because the affection of their heart went to things rather than to him. And he was saying, come and feast on me. Come and let me be that to you and see what I can do with your life. So a little survey. Ready for a survey? How many of you um, have a job? Anyone got a job? Okay. You can put up your hand. How many of you have a salary with that job? I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have that job, I presume. But that's a good thing. How many of you have a home with a roof over your head that either you own or you're renting? Okay. How many of you have a car to get to work? All right, how many of you have medical aid? Okay, um, you're pretty blessed, did you know that? Like we, we might not be living in, I don't know, Gareth, what's the most like glorious city in the world? I don't know, Paris or something. We might not be like, in, but you know what? We are blessed, we are, pretty, we are pretty wealthy, we have what we need. And I think that there's a similarity between our community and this church of Laodicea. That's a blessing from God, but here's the warning. We must be careful to not therefore put our faith and dependency in those things rather than in him. Okay, God wants to be that to us. So then he goes on and he, he, he then gives, I guess, the, the solution. He gives the, the, the correction. He's like, this is what I want for you to do. So let's read together and see... Um, what he has to say. He says, I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So what's God saying to this church, this church that has kind of moved away, it's kind of left its first love? He's saying, he's saying number one, I, I want you to repent. Okay, what does it mean to repent? Now, now sometimes I think we've communicated repentance as being like, like hugely sorry for your sin, and, and it might include that, but to repent means literally to, help me, to? It, it means we turn around. So I'm, I'm, I'm living in this way. I'm pursuing these things. The affection of my heart is going to this. I'm living in, and, and, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, and I realize, oh my goodness, this is not what life's about. So what do we do? He says, I want you to repent. He calls the church to turn around and turn, not just turn around, but turn back to him. So he says, he says, repent and turn. And he says, come and buy from me gold refined in the fire. He says, come and let me give you clothing, white clothes to cover your nakedness. Come and let me restore vision to you. More on that in a moment. And then he says, behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. You know, we've often used that analogy or illustration in an evangelistic way, haven't we? But the reality is that God was knocking on the door of his church. Hey, guys. He was not, like, God, please don't be on the outside. We want you here, don't we? But sometimes God, it appears, seems to have been left out and he's knocking on the door of his church and he's saying, I wanna come in. Someone once said that the door of our hearts, this is the door of our hearts, it only has one handle and that handle's on my side. In other words, God's saying, I'm gonna stand knocking until you open and I'm not gonna stop knocking, but I hope for your sake that you open soon. God is calling us to make a decision. Who will you live for? 
What will you live for? There is life in him, but in honesty, there's death everywhere else. God's saying, let me come in and feed you. Let's feast together. I want to be the one that defines your, your life. So will we make that decision? Will we open the door of our hearts and say, God, I don't wanna just go through the motions of religious Christianity, tick the box. No, I wanna have a relationship with you. I wanna walk with you. So he's standing at the door of our hearts. He's knocking. And then what does it say? It says, if anyone opens that door, I will come in and I will eat with that person. I'm gonna have a feast with that person. Now, now what, what's that all about? Well, in, in Middle Eastern culture, if you had a meal with somebody, it was more than, you know, we're gonna go get a takeaway from the fast food joint. No, no, if you, if you have a meal together, you would go to that person's house and, and great preparation had been taken before the meal, and you would sit down together, and it would be, you'd be there for hours together. And in fact, they would bring the food out in one big pot, and they would put it on the table, and we would all sit around, and we would eat together, because it was more than just the eating of food, it was the sharing of life. So when God says, I want to come in and feast with you, have a meal with you, he's saying, I want to come in, and I want to be with you, spend time with you, and I want to exchange life with you. He's saying, if you give me your life, then I'm gonna give you my life. That almost feels like an unfair exchange, don't you think? I'm like, like, we get so much more back, but he actually, he loves us so much that he feels the same way, all right? So there's this invitation to feast, and in feasting on him, all the stuff that we need, he begins to give to us. Now, let's test your Bible knowledge. Can anyone think of a story in the Bible where there was a feast, a meal, that was symbolic of the reconciliation of God and a person? Anyone think of one? Say again. Zacchaeus. I can't remember that one, but you're much better than I am. Thank you. Anyone else? The Last Supper. Yeah, anyone else? Okay, I'll tell you. Luke chapter 15. Okay, the story that we often talk about is the story of the prodigal son. Okay, which is actually the story of an amazingly good father who had to have, happened to have two boys. Do you remember the younger son? The younger son, is, is, he leaves home because he reckons, I know better than you, dad. And he leaves home, he takes the money, and he, and he spends the money, he's got the friends, he's the man, he's got the clothing, it's like all happening. And eventually, as happens in this life, it all ends up being nothing. And he gets to the end of himself, he realizes his predicament, he's like, oh, okay, this is not working out how I thought it would. I'm gonna go home and hopefully I can just become a servant in my father's house. So he begins his trip home. Do you remember how we found the father? What, what was the dad doing? The dad, the dad began to run to his son. He wanted to reconcile. He was so excited. His boy had come home. Why? Because he loved his son. He was waiting for this moment of reconciliation. And when he got to his son, number one, he said, get the fattened calf and kill it. Why? Because we're gonna have a meal. We're gonna have a feast. We're gonna, we're gonna have a celebration. And so God, when he says, I'm gonna come and feast with you, he wants to celebrate your return. And in celebrating your return, he gives you a bunch of things. Number one, that young man, I believe, experienced what true wealth was all about. You see, he had all the money, he lost the money, but he came back and he got what money couldn't buy him. What was that? Relationship with his dad. You see, guys, I know you know this, but what matters in life it's helpful to have lots of money, it really is, it's a blessing, but what matters in life is not how much you have in your bank account, what matters in life is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you known by him? Do you love him? Because one day, we're all gonna stand before him and he's gonna ask me and you, what did you do with Jesus? Number two, who and what did you live your life for? And we can have all the money in the world and all the accolades and all the prizes and the promotions and the trophies and wonderful, go get them, live big. But if you don't have what matters most, then you have nothing. 
And God is saying, true wealth, true wealth is you and me. Okay? That's what God wants to give us. He says, come and buy from me gold refined in the fire. Come and buy what money can't buy. Come and have what money can't buy, what you can't pay for. I'm gonna give you what will have eternal value, relationship with me. The prodigal son comes home and there's a meal, there's a celebration, there's reconciliation. But then the father gives him a bunch of clothes. He gives him a robe and he gives him sandals. The robe speaks about right standing, right relationship with God. The sandals speak about sonship because slaves walked around barefoot, but sons always wore shoes. The point was he was saying, I don't want you just forgiven. I want you to come home into my love and I want you to be in right standing with me and I want to release identity over you that no longer would you be living for your image and favor and success and followers on Instagram and social media. He's like, that's wonderful. But most important, let me tell you who you really are because then you will know the peace of God. And so he gets sandals and he gets a robe and then he gets a ring on his finger. And the ring was all about purpose. It was about being entrusted by your dad to represent your dad in matters of business. And so when God comes to the church in Laodicea and he says, I'm gonna give you vision, he's saying, I wanna give you eyes to see why you're really alive. I wanna give you purpose. You see guys, in the depths of our hearts is a longing to be loved it's a longing to find out who we are. It's a longing to find out why we're alive. But there's a move of the enemy in the world to, to convince you, tempt you, make you believe that all that is found out there in things rather than in him. And God is saying, today, I want you to come home and I'm gonna give you a feast that you could never have out there. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So that's what he asks. He says, I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming to knock on the door of your heart. Will you open it? But then it concludes with one final thing. It's called the conqueror's promise. It says, to the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who says yes, to the one who comes home, to the one who, who repents, turns, the one who comes to a feast and, and feasts with me, to the one who lives his life or her life for me, what will I give them? I will give them the right to sit on my throne with me. Wow, what is that? That is, that is authority in the kingdom. Not authority over people, but authority in the kingdom to bring freedom to those people who don't yet have it. He's saying, if you will come home, you will be like Denizli, where you can bring hot water to those who need healing. You, if you will come home, you will be like the other city that carries cold water that will quench the thirsts of the world. If you will come home, not only will you be satisfied, but you will become a wellspring of life to the people that are in this world. Your faith, once again, will have impact on the world around you. Does that make sense? And so God is speaking to us today. Can you hear him speaking? I know you can hear me, but I hope the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. We've heard it through what Lucy shared, what Hanre shared, and hopefully a bit of what I've shared. I feel like God is saying, come and feast on me. Come into my heart. Come and let me touch your heart. And maybe your heart has grown hard and God wants to come and soften your heart so that once again, that you would be in love with him. God wants to reignite our hearts today that there would be a faith, a fire, a passion, and a zeal for him and for the things of his kingdom.